I'm reading this morning from Genesis 6. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground, will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Let's pray together as we begin. Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to gather as your people, and celebrate you, as we have been doing this morning. And now, as we prepare to look into your word, Lord, we expect you to speak to our hearts. Lord, may our hearts be open, and may our minds and thinking be transformed so that we might be changed, no longer conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. Do a mighty work in us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God loves dramatic rescues. You've probably experienced a few in your own life, if you've walked with God very long. But they're all through the scriptures. You think of God coming to the Israelites in Egypt and through the ten plagues, leading them out and uh, crossing the Red Sea and wiping out all of Pharaoh's army. From that to Gideon with 300 men, destroying a vast, huge army. Hezekiah, who was king, and 185,000 Assyrians were attacking the city of Jerusalem, and God, in one night, wiped out the entire Assyrian army to save the people of Israel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. God rescued them. Daniel in the lion's den. God rescued him. Peter and John in a Roman prison. And we could go on and on, but it seems pretty clear. God really loves those dramatic rescues. But few of his rescues have captured the imagination like Noah 
and the ark. (laughs) How God rescued Noah and his family from a flood that destroyed the entire earth. Every life, everything that had breath in it on the earth in that day. Now, it's a great Sunday school story. We've all heard it many, many times and, you know, had our little little toy boat with the little animal figures on it or flannel graph or whatever, how all the cute little animals on board and the nice little boat ride they had and et cetera, et cetera. But the truth is this story, it's a story, but it's a true story. This event that happened in history, the flood in Noah's Ark, is full of great theological significance that we need to understand if we are to live our lives for Christ today. We looked last week at how Jesus described, and let me read it for you again, Matthew 24, verse 37, where it says, The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Just as God rescued Noah, so God wants to rescue his people today from a coming judgment that is coming. It's most assuredly coming, just as sure as the flood happened. And so the real question is, are we willing to be like Noah and walk with God today? Are we willing to enter the ark, so to speak, and be rescued from the judgment to come? That's part of the challenge of this amazing event of Noah and his flood. We need to understand the reason for the flood, if we really understand the story, and God's rescue plan as we see how he rescued Noah, if we are to really understand the message that God has for us in it. So let's look together, and let's begin by looking at the reason for the flood. Verse six, uh, or chapter 6 of Genesis, verse 11 and 12, let me read those again, but I'll just read them. Now the earth was corrupt. In the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Do you get the sense maybe that the earth was corrupt? Is God trying to make a point here, maybe, perhaps? I think so. Um, That word, the word for corrupt, is a word that's used to describe decay, corruption, rottenness that has spread. Like taking a bowl of fruit and you look and there's rotten fruit in there and it's smelly and there's fruit flies around and there's mold and it's, it's rotten. It's not good for anything but to be thrown out. It's used in the Old Testament. God tells Jeremiah to take a cloth belt and bury it for a year. And he digs it up, and when he pulls it up, he finds that it has rotted. Everything's falling apart. It's no good anymore. It's ruined. And that's another translation, ruined. And God saw that the earth was ruined because man had ruined it. That's what he says here. Before, remember when God created the whole earth and man and everything, and he saw, God saw that it was very ruined. 
good. But here it says, God saw, he looked on the earth and saw that it was corrupt. It was destroyed. You see, when man has the run of things, we ruin it. We twist it. Now, man's created in God's image so we can do some good things, but it's always tainted. It's always twisted. And God looked on the earth and he saw that in every sense, morally, economically, ecology, etc., the whole realm of the earth had been corrupted. There was rottenness through every part because man had corrupted his way on the earth. You see, when we turn away, as we looked last week, as we turn away from God, we act independently of Him and we decide to go our own way, the result is always corruption, taintedness, destruction. Sin ruins everything. So it says the, the world was corrupted. And then it says also, notice, he says, um, the earth was filled with violence. Now remember God's command back in chapter 1. He says, after he created man, he blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with fruitfulness and life and nurturing. That was God's command. But notice in chapter 6, what has man filled the earth with? Violence. That's a really harsh word. It's the word Hamas in Hebrew. It's a word that means to do great harm to the innocent, to destroy the structures of society, law, relationships, culture, to destroy people's lives, to take away what's valuable in their lives, to oppress those that are less powerful than you. So instead of filling the earth with goodness and life, man tends to fill the earth with violence and harm. See, the reason the flood came is because God had created the earth good and given man a job to do, to fill it with fruitfulness and life and tend it and care for the earth and care for relationships and care for one another. But what man does apart from God is he corrupts it, he destroys it. He takes what God has made and perverts it, turning it into rottenness. Now, you see this maybe most profoundly. I mean, we could talk about all kinds of situations around the world, but I just think about, you know, major, large cities. The more people you get together, think about, you know, a beautiful forest, a lush meadow, a beautiful scene that God has created, and man tends to come in and pave it over, put up ugly buildings, (laughs) And what gets produced from all that? Crime, violence. Now, there's good things. Like I said, man's created in the image of God, and good things can come out of cities, but also they tend to be full of corruption and violence. They're the inevitable results of living life independently of God. That's why God had to destroy the world in the Great Flood in Noah's day. But notice something very interesting. Verse 13 and verse 17. God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence because of them and behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. That word destroy, it's exactly the same word 
as corrupt back in verse 11 and 12. And in verse 17, Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy or corrupt all flesh in which is the breath of life. Now let's think with me, follow me for a minute with this connection. Man corrupts and perverts everything that God has made. So God merely carries out what man has already begun. He just finishes the job. He just finishes corrupting. He finishes the extent. He takes the bowl of fruit and says, it's already rotten. I'm going to just finish the job. And that's what God does. He loves us enough that he gives us a choice as human beings. And when we choose rejection of him and we choose perversion and we choose corruption, he gives it to us. And so the flood destroying the earth and the final judgment to come are simply what we have chosen ourselves. God's given us what we have chosen by turning our backs on him. That's part of God's grace. That's part of his love. He gives us free will to choose, and when we reject him, he gives us what we've chosen. So God promises to flood the entire world, destroy all life on earth, to wipe out sin and evil from the world, to judge it, to wipe it out, to give us what we've already chosen. And as we saw last week, it isn't that God's remote and, hmm, they've corrupted, and so, gee, I guess we'll just wipe them out. No, God grieves because he longs for relationship with us and it's not what he wants. But yet, as a holy, pure God, that's what must happen because he is holy. So he must judge sin. Judgment is inevitable for our rejection of him. But rescue is not inevitable. And he gives us a choice to be rescued. So let's look at God's rescue plan. He comes up with a plan for the days of Noah and Val read verses 13 through 22. Notice God's command. He says, make for yourself, Noah, an ark. Make an ark. The only other place this word ark is used is it's used in Exodus for Moses' basket. Remember his mother put him in a basket on the Nile River And that was his rescue craft. That's the only other place this word is used. You see, the ark is our rescue craft. It was Moses's and it's Noah's as well. It's a great lifeboat, in other words. God's plan. So I thought, you know, it might be a great church project because people look at this and they think, this is a huge boat. Is this even possible to make? I thought we should spend the next couple of years and just make an ark as a church project. But you know what? We don't have to because somebody already did that. I want to show you some pictures. This is Johan Hubers, a Dutchman, who in 2005 decided he was going to build a replica of the ark. So he did. He built it all by hand, he and his sons. They used some modern tools, but not a lot. And it took him not all that long This is a picture of it. You can see the door in the side, one door in the side. And I want to talk about that for a minute. When God tells him to get in the ark, he says, come into the ark. He invites him into the ark. 
God's already on board. Come into the ark, and then when he gets on board, he shuts the door. I think it's just a picture for us. There's only one door in the ark. It's a reminder to us that in the flood, there was only one way to be rescued. You couldn't build your own lifeboat and expect to be rescued. No one else was rescued. Only those who got invited on board and he shut the door behind them. And it's a reminder, Jesus is the only way. He is the door to the sheep, he says in John 10. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, Jesus said, John 14, 6. There's only one way, one door. So Johann Huber has built this huge ark. Next picture. And uh, now it's a tourist attraction. You can go there to the Netherlands and you can see this and you can walk on board. Now the dimensions of what he built is actually uh, in volume one-fifth the size of Noah's ark. Noah's ark was actually exactly twice as long as this boat and a little over twice as wide. And when you figure out the volume, it ends up to be five times as much. And so people today kind of think, well, um, could he really have done that in Noah's day? Could he have built a boat that big? (laughs) Well, let me say that there's many boats far larger today than Noah's Ark would have been. Uh, The Titanic was twice as big. Um, There's some evidence of wooden boats nearly this big being built along the Mediterranean in ancient times, in ancient Egypt and Syria and other places. Another question that scientists and others have is they say, well, could a boat this size really fit every species of animal and insect, every land creature and bird on Earth? And they've done calculations. They say, well, um, you know, it actually could, especially if there were kind of representative species that later developed the other related species, perhaps, that were similar. And I want you to notice verse 18 of chapter 6. God says, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. That word covenant, this is the first place it occurs in the scriptures. That is a key word that we will talk about more next week because God longs to make a covenant with us to rescue us, if we will only respond to his invitation to enter, to come through the door. So I want want you to notice at the end of chapter 2, thus Noah did. God said, build the ark. Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. In chapter 7, God says, enter the ark now. Come in, literally, Come into the ark, you and all the animals, etc. And in chapter 5, Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Now think how it must have been for Noah. He doesn't expand on it here, but think how it must have been. I think, and many, many creationists think, and, and many believers think, that up to this point it had never rained on the earth. And yet Noah's saying, well, it's going to rain and it's going to flood. And so he spends maybe up to 100 years. We don't know how long it took him to actually build the ark, but it took him a long time, many years. And he's building this ark and think of what his neighbors must have thought. Some of you have seen maybe the movie Evan Almighty. (laughs) It's a modern parable of 
an ark being built and the ridicule he received from his own family and from others. But it must have been so much worse for Noah, who was a righteous man and no one else was following God. And they must have ridiculed him and thought him to be a complete fool who had lost his mind to spend so much of his life building this huge boat. But yet it says Noah did everything God commanded him to do. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, it refers to Noah. In this wonderful chapter that's all about the heroes of the faith, Hebrews 11, and it says this in verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So Noah is upheld as someone who, even though he hadn't been able to see what was coming, believed the word of God, said, Lord, I'm going to do what you're telling me to do, even though from his perspective and from the perspective of the world around him, it did not make sense. And by that act of obedience and faith, he condemned the world around him, it says, the author of Hebrews. By his faith, believing God, It's a reminder to us that God is looking for men and for women who are willing to believe and obey. Believe God enough by faith to obey, to do what he says in a world that doesn't understand, in a world that may ridicule us, in a world that rejects God and rejects his ways. God is looking for people of faith who are willing to trust him. And do what he says. And what Jesus said when he was looking forward, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on earth? Jesus asked. Will he find faith on earth? People like Noah, who are willing to do what he says, no matter what it costs us. So that's God's plan. Build me an ark. Invest in it. Get on board. And it says God shut the door behind him. So let's look now at the flood. I want to talk about this whole issue of the flood, obviously, because it's a big issue. And, and many, if not all, secular scientists reject the idea of a worldwide flood. And many Christians struggle with it. How could there be, have been this worldwide flood? How could that be? How could we understand that? Did it really happen? Was it really universal? Now, I'm not a scientist, obviously, but I want to give you four reasons why I think it's very reasonable to to believe as believers, as Christians, that there was a worldwide flood. I think first, reason number one is that the text here, as you read the text, is very clearly universalist language. Look at 617, I just read it. I'm bringing flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven, God says. Not just a localized area, but I'm going to destroy all flesh from under heaven. Over verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. Verse 
19 of chapter 7, the water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind of all, notice all the alls, (laughs) of all that was on dry land, all in whose nostril was the breath of the spirit of life died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, etc. That's pretty universal language, it seems to me. It's hard to see that as localized. So the text here supports the idea of a universal flood. Secondly is the New Testament. I've already read what Jesus says. He's describing, he says, just as it was in the days of Noah when people were wiped out, he describes Noah as real and he describes a flood that wiped out all life. Hebrews 11, as I just read, talked about how Noah condemned the entire world. Second Peter, you may want to turn there with me, chapter 3, verse 3 and following. Listen to what Peter says as he describes the flood. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Notice what he says there. People will say, since the earth began, nothing's ever changed. So God's not going to do anything different. The earth functions on its own. God's not even intervening. He's not involved. Peter goes on to say, For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Notice the words of Peter. He says, you know, people think everything's been going on just how it looks now forever. But he says it escapes their notice. They're fools because God intervened before in history to destroy all life. And the flood of Noah is proof that he will do it again someday. Judgment is coming. Don't be fooled. So the testimony of New Testament, Jesus, author of Hebrews, Peter, make very clear that there was a universal flood that destroyed all life. So as believers, how can we not believe that? A third reason why I think it's reasonable to believe that the flood happened and was universal is there are flood stories on every continent of earth. Now, according to the text, and we'll look at this, the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, spread and inhabited the entire world. All, all mankind had been wiped off the face of the earth, but then they spread. Now, it would re- be reasonable that as they spread, they would carry with them stories of the flood. And there are oral stories, legends, that have been carried down about the flood on every continent on earth, including North American continent, among the Indians, all over the world which makes sense if a flood actually happened. Now, a lot of these stories are just kind of bizarre, like the Babylonian one that says, well, 
the gods, there were many gods, started getting tired of mankind on earth because they were too noisy, just irritated them. And they were multiplying too fast. There were just too many of them. So they decided to get together and wipe out all mankind. But they decided to save one hero, so they had him build an ark. Although the ark was this giant cube, far bigger than the... It, it wouldn't have never been seaworthy. It wouldn't have worked. But, but there, that's the legend from Babylonian area. And there's, and there's others like it. But they carry seeds of the true story. That's confirmation, for me at least, that the flood really happened. The whole world knows about it. There's a legend of it. And let me give a little uh, fourth, a reason why it's reasonable to believe in a universal flood. I think, again, some scientific evidence. Again, I'm not a scientist, but I've read enough to understand some things. Now, if you're a geologist or if you've studied geology way back in earth science, you know, in like ninth grade, okay, you learned the geologic column and that, you know, the, la- the earliest fossils were laid down first and then gradually the next, the next, the most recent fossils are on the top and there's all these different levels. And you see it laid out on a chart and you just think, wow, that makes sense. That fits perfectly. What they never tell you is that that column does not exist anywhere in the world. It doesn't exist. Everywhere, it's topsy-turvy, it's twisted around. There may be a few levels in that order, but then it's wiped out. Often, often, layers that they think should be on top are on the bottom. And the whole column is just confused when you get into reality. It does not exist out there. It makes sense that it would not exist in this picture of, you know, gradually everything's been going on the same and... All these layers got laid out over millions and millions of years. It makes sense it wouldn't be that way if there was a massive flood and that most of those fossils got laid down by a flood that caused massive silting. And in addition to that, virtually no fossils are being made today. If it happened gradually, why aren't they being made today? In great amounts, we find millions of fossils. But if there was a massive flood and everything got buried all of a sudden under silt and all kinds of things, it would make sense that fossils would be created in massive amounts. To me, that makes sense. We saw in Second Peter how it says, man in his foolishness thinks things have been going on the same way since the beginning of creation, since the beginning of time, just as they are now. That's, scientifically, that's called uniformitarianism that things have always been going on the same way. So we look at the last couple hundred years and we say it's been going on this way, so it must have been going on that way for millions and millions of years. But that's foolish if there was a flood because the flood would have changed everything. It would have been God intervening in that and changing everything. In addition to that, we find things in the polar ice caps like mammoths, other creatures, Even human remains have been found frozen in ice. Now, if something something dies, the bacteria gets to it, it, it deteriorates really quickly. How could those things have been flash frozen? There must have been some dramatic, cataclysmic event for a mammoth to be flash frozen in ice and still have hair and skin and all those things that they found in it. 
And then one last point. There are huge coal, coal deposits in many places of the world. What, what are those? Well, scientists agree that it's vegetation that has been compressed. How would that happen, though? There's no coal being made today. There had to be a cataclysmic event that buried all kinds of vegetation all at once under tremendous pressure that caused that coal to be formed. Now, let me just give you a possibility, okay? A scenario that a number of people have described as to how this might have all happened, this flood. Just to give you a picture that it is reasonable to believe in a worldwide flood. Makes sense to me, okay? It says way back in chapter 2, verse 6 of Genesis, says the earth had been created and it says a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. You drove today through an inversion, right? When you came to, there was this fog over the earth. Well, it appears from the description there that there was not a normal kind of atmosphere as we have today with rain that falls regularly. There was a canopy probably, a covering that one reason maybe people live so long is there was this protective canopy that kept UV rays and other rays from coming through so people live longer. And under this canopy that covered the whole earth, um, there was intense tropical vegetation everywhere around the earth. So that's partly why people live longer. That's partly why there was this intense vegetation everywhere. And so when the flood happened, it says... Let me read it for you. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth. I'm reading in chapter 7, verse 18. And the ark floated on the water. The water prevailed more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered, etc. The, the rain fell. The wa- it says the, the, it burst open. Um, the fountains of the... <clears throat> this is verse 11. The same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. All of a sudden, this canopy broke down, rain poured from the earth, and uh, all the water poured up from underneath. I don't know what God did. Maybe he raised the ocean floor so the ocean water poured all over. I'm imagining that the mountains were lower in those days, that some of the great geological events that caused the mountains to raise all up hadn't happened yet. We've actually found, man has found, Signs of inhabitants, of humans living on the Andes and on the Himalayas at a height of above 16,000 feet where no one could live today. That only makes sense if they were living at a lower elevation and then those mountains were thrust up higher later. So I imagine that when the flood came, the burst, the, the oceans poured all over, everything was covered, and then as they receded, and God brought the ocean floor back down, and mountains were thrust up, and there were great geological changes. It was massive, and there were silting and fossils and all kinds of things happening. Okay, That is one possible scenario as to how it happened. We do know from 2 Peter chapter 3, as he says there, uniformitarianism is not true. It hasn't always been going on the same. God intervened when he brought the flood. It changed everything. And God will intervene again. Judgment is coming. So, 
How about the flood itself, the flood story? I wish we had time to read it all, but I want to show you on the overhead an outline that just kind of breaks down the way the story breaks down because I think this is significant for us to look at. Notice the outline. At the beginning of it, there's seven days of waiting, seven days of waiting. At the end of it, there's seven days of waiting for the flood to go down, seven, seven. Forty days of the flood, 40 days of receding the waters, 150 days of water triumphing, 150 days of water receding. This is a common structure in Hebrew writing. And notice, it's always pointing to the center line. What's the center line? God remembered. The flood comes for half a year, Noah's in this boat. It had to be difficult. It had to be a time of struggle. And at the end, when it looks like I'm going to be in this boat forever with all these smelly animals, God remembered Noah. I just want to ask, where are you in your life today? Do you feel abandoned by God? I think Noah must have felt that way. You're not alone. Have you prayed and prayed for God to intervene and it seems like he just takes too long? His rescue takes too long. I've felt that way in a difficult job situation I've been in or a difficult relationship or a a struggle with my own sinfulness. It seems like, God, where are you? Why won't you intervene? And here's the message we get, I think, from the story of Noah. God is working out his rescue plan. He has not forgotten us. He loves us as his children. He is working out his plan. And he just says, be faithful, keep trusting me. I am working out my plan to rescue you at the right time. So he asks, will you keep building the ark (laughs) right where you are? Will you keep shoveling manure off the boat? (laughs) Will you keep feeding the animals? Will you keep loving your spouse even when it's hard? Will you keep looking for a job when it seems futile? Will you keep fighting against sin? Will you keep trusting me no matter how long it takes? That's one of the great challenges, I think, of this passage. Let me give a couple implications of this whole flood story. One is that the flood is proof that judgment is coming again. It came once, it is coming again. Let's not be fooled by the world into thinking it isn't. It is coming. But a second implication is that God in his grace and his love has provided a way of escape to rescue us. For Noah, he was rescued by an ark made of wood. We are rescued by a cross made of wood that God has provided for us that we might be rescued. And here's something that just really struck me powerfully as I was studying this week. That word corrupt, man has corrupted the earth, destroyed it, and therefore God says, I will just finish what man has already done. But after the flood, Noah was still sinful and, and sin spread again. And that's why we experience it today. But in Isaiah 52 and 53, this Wonderful picture of Jesus. It's a prophecy of Jesus. All we have, like sheep, have gone astray, but God poured the iniquity, our iniquity on him. That wonderful passage. In Isaiah 52, verse 14, it says, He was corrupted beyond 
any man. Same word. Do you see what God did in our rescue? Rather than destroying us and the whole world like we deserved, God chose to destroy or corrupt his own son. Jesus took the corruption that we deserved on himself. He was corrupted. He was destroyed so that we might have a way of rescue. He invites us on board. Trust in my cross. I will give you life if you'll only trust me. He gives us a choice. So our part is simply to receive the invitation. To believe that what Jesus did on the cross covered our sin forever. We cannot rescue ourselves. We can't build our own lifeboat. We aren't going to swim long enough, folks, to make it. But he provided a way out if we will accept his invitation and let him shut the door behind us. In the flood, God destroyed sin, but it came back. In the cross, God destroyed sin for everyone who will believe forever. So now we want to celebrate communion, celebrate the great rescue that God has done for us on the cross. What he has done in taking our corruption, our sin, on himself, so that we might experience life with him forever. He rescued us. He gave us life. He made us part of his family, part of the community of faith. So every time we take communion, that's why Jesus says to do it regularly, we remember what he did in rescuing us from our own corruption in this corrupt world. He made us part of his family, gave us forgiveness that we might learn to love one another and love him in this community of faith that we are all part of now. And every time we take communion, we not only celebrate his forgiveness and the community that we now get to be part of, but we also, Paul tells us, we proclaim the sure hope that he is coming again. So let me pray, and then we'll pass out the elements. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, even if you're a visitor, you're welcome to take it with us. We will take the elements all together. I will lead you as a community We do it together as a sign that we are one in him. But let me pray first. Lord, we come before you as people that in ourselves we know we are corrupt. We do not have life in ourselves. We come before you with thankful hearts knowing that you have provided a way out, a way of rescue from the judgment that is coming. And so we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for the gift of life. And as we take communion together now, we celebrate you as our Redeemer, as our Rescuer, as our Savior. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen.